Cindy will tell you the story, yes. Um, so so here so th this will be kind of a fun class today. You're uh, believe it or not, you guys get to participate in in an in amazing event. Today is actually going to be a world premiere day. Um, my uh, my daughter-in-law her her uh, her dad works in the religion department uh, at BYU. Uh, his name's Ken Alford. Uh, Ken and Ken stayed with us over the weekend, and so you can imagine how our conversations late at night uh, went, since he's a church history guy. Um, and part of what what's happened is uh, he and uh, uh, another professor, Anthony Sweat, Tony Sweat, who's done some beautiful paintings and stuff like that. They are creating online classes for students. And the idea was is that they will do these online classes uh, and then probably either meet once a week at BYU or if it's, it's remote then they, they won't meet at all. But it, it, they're beefing up their online stuff and they went to the church and said if we're going to do this we need, we need uh, audiovisuals, we need videos, we need stuff. And the church gave them a great budget and so they have been creating church history church history videos that that lead towards teaching certain parts of and they and they have not yet been released <laughs> until today <laughs> uh, with a little arm twisting I was able to wrestle one of these videos away from him and he says this has only been seen by a couple of selected people this is the first time first time it will have been shown to a group uh, of saints and so he said will you show it if you we'd love to have you show it and kind of get some feedback as to what you think since this is content that's going to go out and he says oh by the way it has original videos original music original uh, op, uh, illustrations and everything so cool deal so and so I said well well, I'm, I'm teaching on the Doctrine and Covenants, so we went through and I got to see a number of these videos, but I picked out the one that I wanted to be able to show today, which will... So, anyway, without further ado, you get to see one of these videos. Hi, baby. Each of them. 
To begin, we sometimes assume that every section of the Doctrine and Covenants came as Joseph received the word of the Lord in his mind, and then dictated it to ascribe sentence by sentence. This is the case for several revelations. For example, Joseph dictated section 84 in front of a group of elders. But the Lord revealed many other sections differently. Some came to the prophets through the urn and thumb or seer stones. Orson Pratt reported that when the Lord revealed section 34, Joseph produced a small stone called a seer stone and putting it into a hat soon commenced speaking. Section 102 came from scribes taking notes during a meeting of the Kirtland High Council. Section 131 on eternal marriage came from the journal entries of Joseph's secretary. A few sections, such as 128 on baptism for the dead, came directly from Joseph's letters. We even find a temple dedicatory prayer in section 109. In whatever form the revelations were received, most were not originally part of an actual book. Instead, they were first recorded on little sheets of paper. Later, they were copied into special notebooks. We call these manuscript revelation books one and two. In Joseph Smith's time, they were known as the Book of Commandments and Revelations and the Kirtland Revelation Book. These books are often our earliest source material for Doctrine and Covenants revelations because many of the original revelation papers are gone. By 1831, Joseph had received about 60 revelations. At that point, church leaders held a conference in Hiram, Ohio, where they decided to publish the revelations in a book. They called this the Book of Commandments and decided it would be printed in the church's press in Independence, Missouri. But because 19th century book publishing took a very long time, the church wanted to make some of the revelations available sooner. So it printed them in its Missouri newspaper, The Evening and the Morning Star. Those articles were the first opportunity that many church members had to read any of Joseph's revelations. Finally, by July 1833, the printer, W.W. W. Phelps, had the book pages printed and was preparing to cut the sheets for binding the ancient Book of Commandments. But sadly, before he could finish his work, local vigilantes attacked the press and leveled it to the ground. Some of the unbound pages were saved by courageous local saints, including two young girls who gathered up sheets and hid with them in a nearby cornfield. These salvage sheets were later bound together. About 30 unfinished copies of the Book of Commandments survive today. Undaunted by the setback, the church set up another printing shop in Kirtland, Ohio. This time, the book would have a new title, Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Why the name change? Well, in Kirtland, Joseph had organized what he called the School of the Elders to train church leaders in doctrine and religious instruction. For this school, church leaders such as Sidney Rigdon have prepared seven lectures on faith. The church had decided to publish these lectures and a few other documents together with Joseph's revelations. So they organized this book in two parts. They called part one, Theology on the Doctrine of the Church. This included the lectures on faith. They called part two, Covenants and Commandments of the Lord, which included Joseph's revelations. Together, these two parts became one book, The Doctrine and Covenants. This new book included new revelations Joseph had received since the attempt to print the Book of Commandments. It also contained two church statements, one on marriage and a second on government. That we know today is section 134. So by now, the total number of sections in the Doctrine and Covenants had reached 101. Its first edition was printed in 1835. 
As years pass, the church has published several updated additions to admiral revelations or declarations. The 1844 edition added eight new sections. These included section 119 on tithing and section 135 on the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith. Apostle and church historian Orson Pratt oversaw the 1876 edition, which added 26 new sections. Section 2 contains the visit of the angel Mar oh. Moroni. Section 13 gives the words of John the Baptist restoring the Aaronic priesthood. Section 110 details the appearance of the Savior and other heavenly messengers in the Kirtland Temple. And Section 136 contains Brigham Young's revelation at winter quarters to guide the pioneers. This edition also added basic footnotes and removed the 1835 statement on marriage. Elder James E. Talmadge directed completion of the 1921 edition. It added official declaration number one, which led to the ending of plural marriage. It removed the lectures on faith, displayed the text in double columns, and expanded the footnotes and index. This edition also combined the Doctrine and Covenants, Book of Mormon, and the Pearl of Great Price together as a triple combination. The 1981 edition added two new sections, 137 and 138. Since 1976, these have been included in the Pearl of Great Price. It also added official declaration number two, which made the blessing of the priesthood available to everyone. This was the first edition in which all four standard works were published together in one book known as the Quad Combination. The 2013 edition expanded the introduction and revised most section headings to make them clearer and more accurate. It updated the chronological order of contents. It added headings giving background and context to the official declarations and corrected some minor footnote errors. One of the most unique things about the Doctrine and Covenants is that it's an open book of scripture. New revelations may be added as the Lord communicates with modern-day prophets, seers, and revelators. The Doctrine and Covenants is remarkable proof that God continues to speak to his servants in this day, revealing his word to his Latter-day Church and people, giving unto the faithful line upon line, precept upon precept. Okay. about that? All right. Uh, comments? Uh, impressions? Yeah. She doesn't say when or if the church voted to accept it as scripture. We'll talk about that. You're right. She, she left that part out. We're going to have that as part of our discussion as to what was... Uh, Canonized. That was that was. It's funny you should mention that. Um, that was one of the discussions that that Ken and I had. Uh, was when section 135 was actually canonized because uh, it has. There, there are some questions related to that. Okay. Um, other other comment. Yeah. Is this for a course? Yes. This is this is a, a course in church history. Okay. Uh, and, they, and they have created a number of them, um, probably over several courses, I think. She needs to speak a little slower because it's yeah, like getting does. information with a fire hose. Yeah. But if you were trying to make notes or thinking you had to be tested on this or write something on this later, it might be a little hard. That, that's my... Okay. We'll speak a little bit slower. Okay. Uh, any other? Yeah. That was really good. 
Yeah. I thought it was an amazing amount of information, like you need to watch it about 10 times. Right. But I thought I've never seen it presented that clearly in all of Yeah, he was, Ken actually wrote the, the script, Ken and, and Tony Sweat, um, and, and, but he was really thrilled with the graphics. <laughs> he thought the graphics laid it out visually in a way that you could see all of those kind of things. Um, it is interesting that he says the couple of uh, older saints that he's shown it to want it to go a little bit slower because they're trying to pull in the information. Mm -hmm. He says a couple of students they've shown to put it on like uh, speed and a half. <laughs> it's like they're, they're, they're going through it. It's, it's too slow for them. They want it faster. Uh, but, but studying on this the way that I have studied, uh, there's an incredible amount of information almost line upon line uh, in this. And Ken almost needed to have made two videos on this because it, it, there's a number of hidden little gems in here. And we're going to talk about it. We'll see how far we get today, but certainly today or into, Mar into next week. So, yeah. Is that available for us? To Not yet. Uh, they're going to wait and see how they how they do this. Uh, whether it would be available to the church generally, or just for those taking the course, at least for right now. Because uh, again, I, I was looking at a whole list of these things, and I watched I watched several of them, uh, and I kept thinking, I got to have these. So so part of my hook on this is I got to show this one. Ken, let me show the next one. <laughs> and, and they're loving it, but they were wanting to... The, the, the class said... Here's what you're going to say. Okay, listen closely if you ever get asked. It was so good, but it's hard to evaluate it unless we see several. Yeah. Yeah. We, if we put it all together, then we can provide a better analysis of whether we think this gets the idea across. Is that, is that, is that basically what you were thinking? Yeah. Oh, okay, that, that works, yeah. <laughs> Even more nitpicky, it was a little distracting for her to not look at each of them. Yeah, they thought, well, yeah. you got to remember, too, the target audience on this is, is millennials. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then they're kind of, they're distractible. <laughs> That's right. But, yeah, I, I, th that was the only thing that bothered me a little bit. But it's kind of a little bit more current. It's, it's, this is the way they were... We're not hip enough. We're not hip enough, <laughs> yes. Or there possibly you could just do like a little cliff note page and just put the dates there. Because I know when I watch that, I'm going to start writing down. Right. So they just want to the dates, then we're going to go, oh, that Yeah, the idea on this, especially with, with the course that's come, that they are developing now, like I say, they will meet once, once a week, but they're supposed to have watched this video at least a couple of times to start. And, and so the idea is it's almost like a textbook where they're going to be copying down information because there's a lot contained in there. There really is. There we go. Okay. Any other? But just very cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. It seemed to me it was a good overview, but it kind of leaves you wondering, well, what was the differences from one version? Yes. He says, he, he says it's a nice overview, but it, what's the difference between the 1835 edition and, and, and like the 1920 edition, which is actually the one I took on my mission uh, that was out there for a long time. So we, we, the nice thing is, is that we're, what we're going to have the ability to do, you saw the video, uh, now we're going to actually be able to walk through this. Uh, and maybe at some point we might watch it again because then it will actually make more sense. Yeah. I love the, um, I'm a very visual person, so I yeah. love the pictures, 
And I just got really excited when it showed um, Isaiah, no, anyway, whoever brought the uh, right. temple work back to the, you and the Kirtland Temple. Yeah. That was exciting. It didn't, it didn't hold it. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, the, even the, the Kirtland Temple uh, was, a, was accurate in the way that they did that. I, I thought it was kind of cute the way that they, and I'm sure that Anthony Sweat, uh, who actually drew, he, he paint one of his most prominent paintings that's going around right now is the one that has Joseph with his head in a hat and, and over there. That's, that's Tony's work. Uh, so I'm sure he was behind all the visuals. Uh, Ken wrote most of the, the script. But uh, if you look carefully, when, when uh, Joseph is looking in a hat and Oliver's over here writing at the desk, uh, the hat is glowing. <laughs> it's like there's a little light glow going on inside the hat, which, you know, that's supposedly that's kind of what it was. Kind of a, a celestial teleprompter. Yeah. Just going along with the hat, I'm, I'm grateful they put that in there for when our younger the generation gets to see it or whatever, because I was just saying... I never heard that growing up. Yeah. Ever. And so it's neat to see these things portrayed as what actually happened so that you're not like, what? I've, I've heard uh, I've heard Tony speak before, and part of what he says about that is he says uh, that we got our history from our primary pictures, but in a lot of those pictures are stylistically, unless unless they're saying we, we need all this to be accurate, they're going to do it sometimes more symbolically. It's it's their interpretation of what would be a nice painting and stuff like that. But that meant that oft times they weren't accurate, like we've talked about the one with uh, Joseph with his with one finger on the gold plates and he's translating that and, and Oliver's right across from him there's no curtain and Oliver's writing and everything that that one I've got a, a client of mine that's inactive because of that picture that was his final straw so alright well that said let's, uh, let's dive into this uh, we have a lot of uh, we've got a lot of information here and I, I don't want to make this too dry but I think it's important that we know this information so let's back up a little bit uh, Joseph starts receiving revelations uh, from the early days even before the Book of Mormon was printed and they would they would write all of these down and then they started to have so then they would have copies of these and uh, Cindy's always said it's a little bit like almost imagining the Joseph Smith papers is like a stack of papers in a trunk somewhere those would be the Joseph Smith paper collection in an attic somewhere okay uh, but what would happen happened, uh, and as we talked about previously, everybody started valuing these revelations to the point that, that someone like uh, uh, Parley Pratt or something would come and visit where Joseph was and then sit and handwrite copies of the revelations. Uh, Oliver Cowdery had a stack of them that he had copied because they were putting him in something called the Revelation Book so they'd have them officially, but because people wanted to read them the way we like to read our scriptures. This is the scriptures. They're the Book of Mormon, but there's these revelations. What do we do? Well, they would they would hand copy these these manuscripts in their own handwriting, and then they would sew them together, and sometimes put a little cardboard uh, covering on it so that they could carry them when they were out on missions. And it was their own handwritten copy of like three or four revelations. And there were some revelations like the Vision, seventy six, uh, the Olive leaf 88 where they just like we really want to have copies of this and then they'd go off to New York and 
and then people copied that. So, so you had people running around with handwritten copies bound in thread. Mm-hmm. And that's why in, in uh, 1831 they decided that, uh, no, let's go ahead and print it so that they can have the book. Everybody's wanting to do this. So that's when, and the literary firm, part of the law of consecration, the literary firm was located where? In Independence, Missouri. So that's where they bought the press. That's where they set up the press. W.W. Uh, Phelps went to work on it, and, and along with others, and they're busy working, Edward Partridge, um, on this, and they get it, and by, by summer of 1833, like you saw in the visual, the, the pages were all pretty much done for the revelations. They were just hanging, and now they were getting ready to have them bound. They'd get rid- and they were just getting ready to go to the binder when the mob struck in July of 1833 and destroyed the press and burnt most of the pages of what would be the Book of Commandments. And there were only a, a handful of Book of Commandments pages that were saved and a handful that were printed. Uh, that's why if, you're a, if, you're, if you are a uh, collector of Mormon... Uh, stuff the most one of the most valuable things probably next to the lost pages if you found the lost pages that would be like the find of the century <laughs> but even though a first edition book of mormon uh, is running uh, i don't know 75 to 100,000 depending on depending on the condition if you got if you get a book of commandments though it's probably double that there's one at SCU is there, a, is there a Book of Commandments at SMU? Really? Those are... You have to tell Reed that there's one hanging over in SMU. <laughs> okay? So, yeah. So, so, so there's a few of those. So now they get to... So, so about a year later, after that's destroyed, they say, well, we still got to print these things. So they recall Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps, have them move back to Kirtland. They get another press, and they start publishing. But now there's been more revelations. There's been more stuff happening. Uh, so, so what happens now is, as they're getting ready to do Uh, the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, a couple of things have changed. And and, and it's important to kind of know the background context on this thing. Okay. 1835. They they put together a a group of four. uh, Joseph Smith... um, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams, the, you can see as, as uh, compiled by, technically, that is the, that's the editors. But Joseph ha- has very, very little to do with the 1835 edition. Uh, he is, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second, he's a little distracted. It has something to do with mummies. Um, <laughs> So the, this primarily falls on Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Rigdon to compile the revelations and anything else that they deem valuable to send out to the saints. Well, that's where it gets fun. Yeah. So since a lot of the other the printed ones were burned or lost, right. go back to the hand copies and bring 
And that's, exa that's exactly what they were doing, Carolyn. It says they were... Um, so now we have in front of us... A couple of years have now passed. We have in front of us some of those hand copies of some of the ones that we missed. We have a couple of copies of the of the Book of Commandments, but we do have the Revelation books. A lot of these were, there are two Revelation books, Revelation Book 1 and Revelation Book 2, and they would, uh, one of Joseph's scribes, whenever he'd receive a revelation, they would write it down at the moment, but then they would copy it into the Revelation book, and they still had those Revelation books. But by, by the time we get to Kirtland, there's Revelation Book 2, and there's more of them. But they have those to draw off of. And what they don't have, they've got hand copies of. Okay? Um, but now we have Oliver Cowdery and Sidney Rigdon primarily putting this thing together. And you're going to get their flavor, and it comes out in this book. Um, so, by way of... Um, there are two major factors that impact the, the, the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Number one is Joseph's hands-off style. He may be generally approving most of it. He's just not there. He's traveling, he's teaching, and he's, got his, and he's, and he's studying Egyptian. <laughs> he's busy. So these guys basically run with it. So, and not only that, Joseph has his hands-off style anyway. Of the, the, uh, he doesn't want to be a top-down administrator. He leaves it for these guys, and they just run with it. And he gives them all kinds of, of room. Um, so that's so. The other part is then understanding the the age in which they lived, and that is the age of enlightenment. From about the early 1700s on through into the, into the 1800s, this has sometimes been called by historians as the Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment is it's like the Age of Logic. We, can, we, can, uh, we are rational people. We should be able to describe things rationally. We will explain anything from faith to freedom and do it as a logical explanation of things and who could argue with my blinding logic. As you might guess, if we were going to think about some of the most rational Age of Enlightenment documents sitting out there, probably the most, the, the example that should jump out, if you think about it, would be what? Any ideas? The Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to throw off a monarch. Here's how we're going to do this. And here would be the reasons why it is that he has not listened to us. Because he's depriving us of our rights, our natural God-given rights, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Therefore, this is why we will do a rebellion. Why, yes, that would be reasonable. Okay. <laughs> and that's just the way that they looked at it. It's just like these, and the Constitution was an Age of Enlightenment document. It's like we're going to explain rationally. Uh, the Methodists at this point had been doing like crazy kind of like Pentecostal-like spiritual things. The Methodists were going, we've got to get more rational here. Calm, chill, settle. Okay. And, and... The biggest influence on that, uh, locally in that area, was Alexander Campbell and the Campbellites. The Campbellites were all about logical, rational, explain it, and any Campbellites in the mix? 
Sidney Rigdon. Sidney Rigdon. That's right. Eliza Snow. Uh, the Whitneys. Uh, John Johnson. Uh, Ezra Booth. There were, but Sidney Rigdon is the driving age of enlightenment kind of thing. So, if you're going to train the brethren in the school of the prophets, and Joseph is going to be hands off, what's going to get written for the benefit of the school of the prophets so that they will rationally be able to go out on their missionary efforts and convince people that the church is true through blinding logic, what, what would they produce? The Lectures on Faith, which was written by Sidney Rigdon. Okay, we have for years we have attributed that to Joseph Smith, but they've done word print analysis things on that just lately and said, "Nah, this is Sidney Rigdon's nuss." Okay, so what a shock when the, when this when the this group is putting the doctrine and covenants together. Guess what, and Joseph is doing his thing over here. Guess what they decide to put in the first part of the Doctrine and Covenants? The lectures on faith. And those go in first. Those go in first, the revelations go in second. Okay? No, they didn't include the Declaration of I'm just I was using the Declaration as an example of Enlightenment documents. Um, they would have loved the Declaration of Independence, by the way. Um, so, let me... Uh, so, I sometimes call the, the, the 1835 as the Creedal Doctrine and Covenants because, because it had all this Enlightenment document. It's like they were creating the creeds. You know, this is what, this is what Latter-day Saints will believe in 1835. And we're going to put this together in a way that it will have, that it will explain this. Okay? Now, let me give you an example where there's a problem with that. Let's see what we've got. So, questions on this so far? Hmm? We see that pretty well. Okay. Are we all right? Are we all right with this visually back there? Cindy's that okay. Okay. I want I want to show you kind of what the this would sort of make sense, right? That we're trying to have the saints know what they believe and what they don't believe. Let me show you what the problem is. This is from the Joseph Smith Papers. So up here at the table of contents, I'm going to hit the table of contents. And I want to go down. So the, so the seven lectures are printed in the first part of the Doctrine and Covenants. I want to go to lecture five. This gives you a flavor, by the way, of... Of, of this book. In our former lectures, we treated we treat of the being, character, perfection, attributes of God. What we mean by perfections is the perfections which belong to all attributes of His nature. We shall in this lecture speak of the Godhead. We mean the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the age of enlightenment. This is why uh, Lyman White, one of the apostles, looked at, read this and went, 
The Book of Commandments was celestial, and this one is like telestial. <laughs> It did, the, the, the 1835 didn't sell very well because it was after reading the section 76 and 88 and then you're going well we shall explain there are two persons okay okay now but read verse 2 there are what oh really Alex let me expand on that one um, I Well, these were. Anything jump out at you? What do you see? Yes. How many personages are there in the Godhead? This says two, the Father and the Son. How do you prove that there are two personages in the Godhead? That's the Enlightenment thing. We must explain. Okay, and what is the Father? What is the Son? How do you prove it? We get one more here. I think it's right here. There it is. Do the Father and the Son possess the same mind? Uh, they do. Uh, question What is this mind? And the answer is. The Holy Spirit. Okay? This is this is Campbellite. This is this is this is this is Sidney Rigdon. This is the Campbells. This is Okay. You see the problems? So so not only was it incredibly dry, it was not this wasn't coming from Joseph Smith and it was wrong. <laughs> uh, but by way of side note, when they got ready to do the 18, the uh, 1981 version of the Doctrine and Covenants and update it from the 1920 version, um, can you imagine which one of the apostles might have loved, 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 loved the, art, the uh, uh, Articles of Faith here? Bruce R. McConkie. Lectures on faith. He loved the lectures on faith. There are a couple of hiccups in the lectures on faith, like that two personages thing. <laughs> so, so Bruce R. McConkie in, 18, in 1981 proposed to the Quorum of the Twelve that um, they, they put the, the, the uh, lectures on faith back in, but correct the hiccups, and he wanted to add two more lectures. <laughs> Well, more article. He, he wanted to add like eight and nine. There's seven of these. He wanted to add eight and nine. Two more articles to the lectures on faith. Okay? Yikes! Uh, and, the, and, the, and the twelve went, ah, not so much. <laughs> I don't think so. This is a, this is a killer. 
But that, but hence you see the problem, right? Now, was the was the 1835 edition canonized? No, not really. It was approved by the church, but it wasn't a solemn assembly. Joseph Smith wasn't even in town. wasn't even a, He wasn't even. He was traveling. And they brought in the quorums and they all voted on it. Yes, this will be scripture. And they went ahead and printed the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay? So technically, Joseph kind of oversaw it, but he, didn't, he wasn't involved. Uh, I don't know how much time he had to actually read through all of these things. And guess what? The book didn't sell very well. So, what do you think? Well, this is, remember, this is still the first edition. This is, this is still the early saints, bless their hearts. And uh, they're still trying to figure this whole thing out. Um, Ken was telling me that, uh, I guess in uh, Kirtland, they had a conference, or in Nauvoo, uh, a few months before the prophet died. And uh, Orson Hyde stood up in a... Uh, general conference and and proclaimed that God was a spirit. This is after he'd already been to Jerusalem and all that, and Joseph had to get up and correct him. These guys were still learning, and I think we have to give them some some space uh, to kind of be learning. And, and, and it kind of comes back to what I've been saying all along. Sometimes when the church has been attacked, it's been attacked based on the fact that they are looking at imperfect people that are in the process of growing. And I think we just need to give these, these saints space to grow, to add revelation and understanding and knowledge on top of what was essentially a very Protestant group doing the best they had with the knowledge that they had. And you had to introduce light and knowledge. Um, look at what's happening with the changes in the church right now. Uh, we got some in April. We got some more in October. Do you think we might get more in April, this next conference? But, the, but they're not dumping the dump truck up and just saying, Let's, here's all the changes that we feel like need to be made. Uh, they're doing it gradually so that we can assimilate knowledge and then add to that. And that, I think that's what happened with these saints. So, questions on that so far? Getting a great history lecture, huh? All right. Now, here's the other thing that they did then. In, in, this, in this copy of the Doctrine and Covenants. Is... Um, we're going, to put, we're going to put things in the book in order of importance, at least through about two-thirds of it. So, let's go back to... Uh, Kevin? Yeah? I to say something about what we were just talking about. Yeah. Is that I always like to give these guys a break. Yes. Any of the church members and say, they didn't, they didn't have the insight. Right. He might have been distracted. They don't have everything that we have today that solidifies our understanding. And what they had had as they were growing up and becoming adults was so ingrained. Yeah. All the different types of Protestantism and everything. I think that that would be hard to get out of the cycle. Oh, almost. 
Well, well, again, when we look at how the, they're rolling out changes in the church right now, we still have a lot of Protestant in us. But now we have Mormon culture in us. And if they say, we're going we're gonna to make changes, we're going to do it slowly and gradually because everything is so built into us that we have a hard shift sometimes if we're going to start to make changes. Well, and not only that, remember, Jacob wasn't talking about his No. He kept, that, he kept a lot of that No. Yeah, that, that's a good point. We get, to, we get to 1834, and there's an awful lot of, pe- a lot of the saints that don't know that the first vision ever happened. It just is not the. It isn't until 1838, and it's and that history is first coming out that a lot of the saints are going to hear about the first vision for the first time. Most of the missionaries are going out and, and talking about Joseph Smith and Angel Moroni and gold plates. There, Joseph had considered that his personal conversion story, and it wasn't until 1838 till some of the brethren are going, Joseph, this could be really helpful in our missionary efforts. Well, he meant to kind of keep that private. Remember, it was years before he told his... We don't know how long, but he didn't tell his family immediately. It was a long time. Yeah? I was wondering, so um, when did they decide that those lectures of faith came from Sydney Rivers? Great question. When did we decide that the lectures on faith came from Sydney Rigdon? Only in the last couple of years. We're talking about very, very current, and a book that just came out within the last two years. Uh, and what they did was, uh, first of all, this, they had red flags on this, things like the two personages stuff, which was Campbellite doctrine. So there was a suspicion all along uh, that it was Sidney Rigdon. And they actually then did a word search uh, using some computer uh, programs, algorithms, to match up Sidney Rigdon's writings with the lectures on faith and Joseph Smith's writings, the lectures on faith and and went, oh no, it's all overwhelmingly Sidney Rigdon. This was one of the reasons though why one of the books that I love the most, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith by Joseph Fielding Smith, the blue book, Uh uh, that blue book would say, uh, here's what Joseph taught about faith. And they say he has a a God of... uh, we have to have a, a faith and then a correct knowledge of his attributes and characteristics and, and all those kind of things and say Joseph Smith taught this. Well now we're pulling back and going no that was Sidney Rigdon. But, but for years and years and years and I taught it, numerous, I've taught it in this class a couple of years ago that Joseph wrote the lectures on faith. But it's only this is really current and it's so and it's current enough that if you were listening carefully, you wouldn't have known what to look for. If we go back and listen, watch the video again, you'd say things that were included by uh, that was lectures on faith written by Sidney Rigdon and other church leaders, mm-hmm. and they have they've up, they've now updated that so that that's now current. But that's, that's really new information. And it's a bit of a heartbreak, especially on that, that first one, because I kind of liked some of that stuff. But that's why some of those books are being pulled, because we said, we thought Joseph wrote and said this stuff. He didn't. We just wanted to be accurate. Yeah. So I, that just shocked me that no one knew about the vision until 38. Because where is he getting any credibility? Where did he say he got the book from? 
Where did he? Like the, well, now, do they know about Moroni? Yes. Everybody knows about the gold plates and Moroni. Oh. It's the vision of the Father and the Son that Joseph just is a little hesitant to talk about. Why would he be hesitant to talk about it? He got slammed. He got slammed. A few people he told, he got slammed. And back then, on top of that, it was one of those things that everybody had like their personal conversion experiences. Well, you may be, you know, if you're a convert, you may not necessarily run around talking about a sacred experience that you had to convert you to the church. But but it was only that's why he'd only he, he only started talking about these things starting in the mid 1830s, but they weren't being printed. The Saints book explains that very that whole process. Right, yeah. Yeah. So all right. So you just kind of see the changes, right? Yeah. When I joined the church in 1969, uh, the most important first lesson was about the first vision. Sure. And your testimony as it grows or your acceptance of the gospel. Uh, the first vision. Is about that. Yeah. It's so interesting that that is such. I think in 1835, Joseph would have said, use other ways of... And in fact, I, I still believe, in some ways, I think if Joseph were today, I think he would cringe with the song, Praise to the Man. <laughs> I think he would say, if, if it's a praise to the man who revealed Christ, I think, he would be, I think he'd be happier with that. Don't make it about me, make it about Christ. Um, anyway, but I want to show you something here. So again... In, in this book, as it's compiled, they were also compiling it. Not they were compiling it also in terms of importance uh, for about two thirds of the book. So let's look at what they felt. The Sidney Rigdon, Oliver Cowdery, those that were compiling this, what they felt was most important. So we go back to table of contents, and okay. So what we're going to get is. Um, the, the lectures, here's the seven lectures, okay? Now, what comes after the seven lectures in order of importance for these saints? Uh, the next one would be the revelation given in 1831, which the Lord says, this is my preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, and would have been the preface to the Book of Commandments, okay? Now, right behind that, then they said, okay, so what would be next in order? What would be most important to the saints after the preface? They went, oh, well, section 20 on the organization of the church. Now think about that one. This is, what, this is how the baptism prayers work. This is how the sacrament sounds. I mean, it's, 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 again, it's, it's less revelatory. And, Sydney, and uh, Oliver Cowdery wrote about half of that one. They were compiling all of those things together to try and say this is a constitution of the church. Okay, that's section 20. What comes right after that? Well, three is uh, section three. It, we now have a section 107 on the priesthood. So we want to know about the lectures, and then we're going to know about the organization of the church, and this is how the priesthood works. Can you see how they're kind of rationally putting this thing together? Okay, what comes next? Section 4. What's section 4? Well, that's 84, of course, <laughs> on the priesthood. Huh. What would be section 5 in this, in this? Oh, well, section 5 we now have is 102. 
Because section five was on organization of the high councils. So, so in a sense, what they were sort of putting together was kind of a, almost like a handbook of instructions book. The first part of the doctrine and covenants is like the handbook of instructions. Let's put it on the organization of the church. Let's talk about the priesthood. Let's talk about uh, the high council. And we're just kind of rationally putting all of this stuff together. Okay? Um, and then here comes the one on uh, government, written by, Sydney, uh, by Oliver Cowdery. And then 88, the olive leaf, right there. Okay? Now, after that, after they get, and then finally we get to section six, uh, talking about uh, John the Baptist. Okay? Now, after that, now they're going to go a little bit more chronological and they're going to go through here. Now, I'll tell you what I find fascinating about this. Um, in, my own, in my own count, I went looking for uh, section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that we now have section 76. Uh, and where did they put that one in order? Um, come on, come on, come on, come on. They put it 91st. <laughs> in all, uh, section 76 was 91, section 91 in the Doctrine and Covenants. And they kind of, they, they'd kind of buried it way, way, way down. They could have easily put that uh, faster, but they, they chose not to. Okay. So as you can imagine, I guess the uh, so as you can imagine, this was not a great selling doctrine and covenants. <laughs> it was dry. It was incredibly dry. It wasn't very that inspirational. the The ideas were there, but it just didn't go well. Okay, yeah. I just thought it was interesting when you opened that up and said, "Publish your parish." Like, wow, did they really put that up? <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's me adding that. Um, okay, we got thirty minutes. Um, uh, let's dive into this. Okay, so what is there possibly that could have come along that would distract Joseph Smith while these guys were putting together kind of this Frankenstein Doctrine and Covenant? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> come on, who can turn down a good mummy story? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, so if we back up a little bit, right about this time, um, who's going crazy over in Europe uh, but uh, Napoleon? And Napoleon is busy conquering as many places as he can, and one of the places that he conquers is Egypt. And they get to Egypt, and Europe hasn't paid a whole lot of attention to Egypt. And so Napoleon gets into Egypt, and it's like, 
dang, there are some cool things here in Egypt. You've got to see these things, man. And the things they built, and oh my gosh, and they wrapped up their dead. Um, so what started happening is after Napoleon leaves, now Europe is all aflame uh, about Egypt. And so they're all sending... Uh, people to go find cool stuff to bring back to their museums uh, and to display and they're all flooding Egypt and they're raiding tombs and they're and th that's why you know half the great stuff from Egypt is still sitting in uh, the Museum of Art and the Museum of History in London and it's in Paris and it's you know they, they brought all of that stuff out of there okay it's a real point of contention if you're Egyptian half your good stuff is you know it's in London so off they go, and one of the guys, one of the kind of the Indiana Jones guys that's running around, this guy by the name of Antonio uh, Lobolo. Lobolo is bringing back a lot of mummies and artifacts and things like that. Um, somehow, and we don't know how exactly how this occurred, um, guy by the name of Michael Chandler. Uh, Chandler fancies himself as the, the nephew of Lobolo. We don't know whether he is or not. He's not really listed in the, in the uh, documents that he inherited some of these. He says he inherited them from his uncle uh, Lobolo. We can't find the record of that. But anyway, somehow he ends up with about uh, four mummies and, uh, and some uh, incredible uh, long hundred foot long scrolls of papyrus and some fragments uh, and and he starts showing them around the United States he gets to Cleveland and he's showing it and he's paying, charging people to come see this uh, and in Cleveland there are people that go hey we got a guy that translated reformed Egyptian over there in Kirtland you ought to go show him to him he'd love this stuff so he hustles his little self over to Kirtland and he shows up in July of 1833, right about the time that they're finishing getting ready to publish uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. And uh, he says, jo Joseph, I'll let, you, uh, I'll let you take this overnight and see what you think. So Joseph takes one of the uh, papyri, the, the, one of the long scrolls, and that becomes important here in just a second, because uh, there's so much controversy around these scrolls in the book of Abraham. He, he takes it overnight, and he comes back, and he says, God has told me that the, contained here are the writings of Joseph sold into Egypt and Abraham. And he says, yeah, we would, like to, we would like to purchase these things. And Chandler goes, all right, um, $2,400. And Joseph, and Joseph turns to the brother and says, there's ancient writing here. And if it is the writings of, it's in Egyptian and it could be Abraham, uh, he and W.W. Phelps look at this and go, this could prove the Book of Mormon. This could prove the Book of Mormon. And so they're actually at a time when the saints are struggling in, in Missouri and they're trying to finish the Kirtland Temple, they, they are able to raise $2,400 and they buy, the, they buy the scrolls. Now, the, the idea at this point, one of the reasons why Joseph is such a top 
uh, he's a hands-off leadership guy, is that he sees his main job as a seer and a revelator and a transcriber of ancient records. That's what he does. And that should be his primary role. And now he has Egyptian stuff in front of him. And he has a and and within the first uh, week or so, we get Abraham one and about half of Abraham two. But so now they have actually transcribed something, and now they will spend and then they will spend until about October when they can uh, trying to fit. This, tr- this translation up against the actual script that they're finding in Egyptian. Keep in mind, nobody at this moment can read Egyptian. The, uh, the uh, Rosetta Stone is being translated in, in Europe right about now, but it hasn't yet made it to the United States. So they're looking at Egyptian stuff. They don't know how to read it, but they're guessing based on what Joseph had revealed. And Joseph is now traveling, so a lot of this goes to W.W. Phelps. W.W. Um, Phelps um, oh, Let me pop over here for a sec. Where did, oh, I, I didn't put it. Okay. I live without this. Yeah. Oh, the, the Rosetta, thank you. The, the Rosetta Stone was a, um, a stone that they had found uh, in Egypt, and it was, the, it was how they cracked reading Egyptian. Because they found a stone, and it was half written in Egyptian and Greek, and there's another language. I don't remember. Hebrew? In, in what? Aramaic. Aramaic. That's what it was. Aramaic and Greek and and Egyptian. And, and from that, they were able to now, for the first time ever, translate Egyptian. And that has that was just happening. But at this moment, in Kirtland, nobody could read Egyptian in the United States. Now, so so they are playing with this, and they are and uh, nobody's playing with it more than W. W. Phelps. Um, time, time out on W.W. Phelps. W.W. Oh, Phelps, um, when, uh, Joseph, when Joseph Smith Sr., and I thought I'd included in this, and I, it didn't copy for me. Um, Joseph Smith Sr. gives W.W. Phelps a patriarchal blessing. And, and Joseph Smith Sr., in the patriarchal blessing, I've got a copy of it, and it says... Thou art a speckled bird. <laughs> Thou art a strange man. <laughs> he was. He was. He was an interesting character. In fact, W. W. Phelps, in some of the writings that he would send, like to his wife back in Missouri, and um, and all of over, over he, W. W. Phelps called himself the court jester. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, my, my job is to explain for the kings some things. Um, so he was a, he was an odd guy, but he was really into languages, and he's going to spend a while digging through, and he tries to put together uh, an Abrahamic alphabet. 
So we get an Abrahamic alphabet, we get some uh, cursory writings, uh, and it's kind of a kind of an interesting little. Um, it's it's what's caused some of the problems these days with people looking at. Um, the book of Abraham and trying to prove that Joseph was not a prophet because of the book of Abraham. And, and, and let me tell you why that, that's a problem. I'm kind of cut through some of this. Um, trying to figure out how to say this. Um, for the longest time, we had the book of Abraham in the Pearl Great Price. And I'm not going to take the time or the, to, to explain how that happened. But we got the book of Abraham in there. And, and Joseph said that he had translated it from um, the papyrus that they got written by the, the book of, written by the hand of Abraham. Okay? This is how we got it. So we kind of accepted it for a number of years, and then, and then, at when when the saints left Nauvoo, uh, they, Emma and and Mother Smith sell the the mummies and the manuscript to the. It ends up in the museum in Chicago, uh, which burns down in the Great Chicago Fire, and the scrolls are lost. But in 1967. Uh, the uh, the New York Museum of Art, going through their archives, finds several fragments of the Joseph Smith papyri, not the scrolls, the fragments, and they are the and they are the fragments that produce the facsimiles that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, the ones that if you go into the if you go into the uh, Pearl of Great Price today, you'll see those Egyptian. Uh, figures and it's the ones that he was transcribing off and for the first time Egyptologists in 1967 are able to see the facsimiles that Joseph was actually looking at when they to put into the Pearl of Great Price and, and it kind of went bad at that point because Egypt, Egyptologists are looking at it going that's not the book of Abraham. That's called the book of breathings. That's a funeral text. That is, that, that's just an embalmer there. And that's not an Abraham on the lion couch. Therefore, ergo, Joseph is a fraud. And even now in, in a, a lot of ex-Mormon circles, the book of Abraham is kind of the the golden pillar of saying Joseph was, was wrong and the church is not true. You said no, New York Museum of Art? History. history. I said art, yeah, history. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things since then the church, starting with uh, Hugh Nibley and others, we have some wonderful Egyptologists in the church now. And, and some at BYU, um, Carrie Mulstein being one of them, uh, who points out this, this, and I just want to show this to you. Um, this, is, this is one of the fragments that, that they got from New York in 1967. Does that, does that look familiar? Okay. Ooh, you know what? I'm not getting... Hold on here. 
I'm going to back up for just a second. I added some things to this, and it is not wanting to, I want the current of, of what I did. Here it is. Thought I was missing something. Okay. There's the facsimile in our current uh, Pearl Great Price. That look familiar? Yes. Okay. And Joseph says this is called the Lion Couch. Uh, in the Egypt uh, uh, one. Uh, Museum things that I've been to, this lion couch is a fairly prominent kind of thing. And in embalming circles, what they would do is they would they would take the, the essential organs out and they'd put them in the, these are called canoptic jars. And they'd put like the liver in one and the heart in another. And so there's some real standard kind of things here that would make you look at it and go, yeah, that's, that probably... Uh, Joseph said this is Abraham on the on the couch uh, fighting off the uh, the Egyptian priest and the Egyptologist said no this is a standard funeral text and they are embalming this guy okay now Mulestein points out a couple of things uh, and th so there are two problems with this uh, this is the first part right here how many mummies do you think are, have got their hands raised like they're kind of fighting off the guy? Okay, that's a little bit weird. And the mummies are bound yeah. down here. Okay, so that's a problem. Uh, problem number two. Uh, how do you get an Egyptian picture like this and put it in an 18, 1800s book? Well, it takes a guy who's going to carve in wood, and he's going to carve this figure in wood, and it's going to take forever to carve this thing, and then when it's finally accurate, then they're going to dip that in ink, and then they're going to put that in the printed text. Okay? This comes from a wood carving that a guy there in Kirtland took the time to carve this thing out while they were impressing that in there. Okay? which was helpful because then we get in 1967 we get one of the fragments here. You can see in the fragments that somebody's trying to add kind of because they got this fragment they're adding these pieces here. Okay. Now I don't want to get too complicated um, but I want to put Here's, here's the, uh, what we have in the Pearl of Great Price, and here's the fragment. And there's a really critical piece that it took Kerry uh, uh, Milstein in at BYU to spot it out that it had not been, nobody figured out. Anybody see the difference? Let your, uh, let your sleuthing skills kick in here. And it's critical. 
Okay, look at Okay. In, in this version, where's the priest standing? Behind the couch. You see it? So where and where's the man laying in in the in the in the one in our version? On the couch, right? In the original papyri, where's the priest standing? Here, here's the lion couch, right here. Where's the priest standing? In front of the couch. So where is the, where is the man on the couch lying? In the air. In the air. <laughs> okay. You see that? You got, okay, so he's actually coming off the couch. He's out here. The priest is standing, him, and the table is behind. So in, in other words, the priest is standing, the man's in front of him, and the couch is behind him. What does that give you a sense of? The man's fighting. He's got his hands up, he's off the couch, the priest is battling with him, and the table is over here behind him. So it's not a, it's not a funerary text. And it's not an embalming scene. It is a human sacrifice scene with a human... And, and the other thing that they, they would say for years and years was, Egyptians just didn't do human sacrifices. Well, now we are awash with records that say, yes, uh, as a matter of fact, Egyptians did do a lot of human sacrifices. Okay? And if they're, if they're alive and they're an adult, then they're, they're fighting. <laughs> They're, they're going to they're gonna push back. Hands are going to be up. They're off the table. I don't want my bowels in those jars. <laughs> I'm going to fight you. Okay? Another thing, a mummy wouldn't have his legs like this. No, like, right. He's, he's kicking, right? He's, he's kicking out. The mummy is like, like this. Okay? So... So actually, on one, on one side where those that attack the church say, oh, the, the appearance of the fragments disproved everything with Joseph Smith in some very powerful ways. It says, no, Joseph Smith got this exactly right. They were doing human sacrifices. They were, and, and this is the, he was actually looking at this fragment when he's describing, he wasn't looking at an embalming text. Kind of cool? Yes. Okay, I, I, I thought that was fun. Um, oh, now that I've, I've renewed this. Okay, so W.W. Phelps. I've got, I've got time to do this. So, so this is from his patriarchal blessing because he's the one looking at this stuff. Thou art a speckled bird. <laughs> Imagine if your patriarchal blessing says this. <laughs> and the Lord hath held thee up to be gazed at. <laughs> Thou art a strange man, <laughs> and the Lord has given thee understanding and knowledge and wisdom and discernment, and thou hast thought thou wast somebody. <laughs> thou hast been exalted and hast been lifted up. Nevertheless, if thou continuest faithful and humblest thyself, thou shalt see great things and have greater knowledge. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Isn't that fun? Okay? Um, all right. Uh, so, so let me let me mention one other flaw that is that is sometimes is uh, attacked uh, 
the church by way of the book of Abraham and, and why it is that I included this thing with W.W. Phelps. that the church gets to see what's in those that, that will become the book of Abraham is actually in the times and seasons. Who's the editor of the times and seasons? W.W. Phelps. Okay, So he's, he's putting this in there and you can see they've, they've done the wood carving. Okay, In our little wood carving the priest is back behind the table. Okay, Guy's on there. Okay. Um, And that's the front page. So here's the second page. I need you to see. You see that right there. This is, this is the headline to this article in the Times and Seasons. And it's this right here. Of some ancient records that have fallen into our hands from the catacomb of Egypt, purported to be the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyri. Okay? Now, if anybody wants to quickly go to the uh, uh, Abraham chapter 1. You got it? What's the headline there? Of Egypt, the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt, called the Book of Abraham, written by his own hand upon papyrus. See history. Yeah, yeah, see the history of the church. In all likelihood, who wrote that? W.W. Phelps. It was part of the newspaper article. Now, we don't know because the scrolls were destroyed. We don't know if if what we had and what Joseph Smith was receiving for the book of Abraham was actually written by the book of Ab was actually written by Abraham or if the entire book of Abraham was just revelation like the book of Mormon was we don't know but but what you've got is people attacking the church saying no your own scriptures say that he had the actual handwriting of Abraham on these scrolls that your pearl of great price says that. And, I, and now what we're understanding is we're, the Joseph Smith papers are helping this out and going, yeah, the book of Abraham is a revelation. However you want to look at it, it's a revelation. Because Joseph couldn't read Egyptian any more than he could read a reformed Egyptian. The book of Abraham's a revelation. Yeah, but your pearl of great price says that it was written by the hand of Abraham. And your response would be what? It was, no, it was, that, that little ditty was written by W.W. W. Phelps. What comes after, this is revelation to Joseph Smith. The rest of the, 
the book of Abraham. And by the way, the content of the book of Abraham matches really well with other Abrahamic texts that they're finding in antiquity. It fits really nicely. It, but the idea that he had actual one of Abraham's scroll, we don't know whether he did or not because the scroll was destroyed. It didn't come from the fragment. And the one claim that we've got that Abraham wrote it with his own hand was written by W.W. W. Phelps. So you can see why sometimes people have become confused when they look at stuff like this and they go, well, if that's the case, then Joseph Smith isn't a prophet. Actually, Joseph Smith wins every time. <laughs> when you start looking at these things, even like the guy on the lion couch, and you start looking at it closer, he wins every time. So we shouldn't be surprised when in future conferences we get some changes to... If they ever decided at some point to take the facsimiles out, wouldn't shock me at all. Or, or realign some of the explanations. Because we got these explanations and because they sat next to these facsimiles, they said, this explanation must fit this facsimile and the, and, and the explanations probably are the scrolls, not the fragment. Having, I, I don't want to get too complicated. but Just having the explanation of who wrote yeah, it helps. That's why I say, so it, the more I dig into this, even when you look at the people who attack the church, you go, no, Joseph Smith was a prophet. And, and every time you actually get their actual information, he shines more and more as a prophet. If you read the book of Abraham with the Spirit, you'll know for sure that it was a yes. revelation. Right. But they don't have the Spirit with them. So. No, they're, they're struggling. And so when they're looking at something like this and they're looking for external validation and then they go, well, you see something like this, well, then I'm out of here. Because we, we put everything on Joseph Smith. Uh, if he's a prophet, everything's true. If Joseph Smith's not a prophet, it all falls apart. If we can prove that Joseph Smith's not a prophet, the whole church collapses. Rather than saying, hey, how about the guy was really flawed? How about he was human? And how about he grew in his knowledge and understanding over time? And when the Lord revealed him to stuff, it was spot on. Even if he didn't know how good he was. <laughs> okay? Yeah? How the Bednar's talk with that graphic of the rope and the twines. And yes. Of, uh, you know, the principles of the gospel and how they're twined together, but... He also references times and changes in the church. It, it really is true, isn't it? And part of understanding that those individual strands of the rope that Bednar was talking about, sometimes were pretty flawed. They're pretty frayed. They weren't very strong at certain points. But wrap the whole thing together and bind it up in the spirit and it just shines. So I, I love these brethren even more for their for just kind of their weaknesses and flaws. Okay. Boy, we are out of time. Uh, so, uh, as far as um, that's where we got to. Alright. So, for next week uh, the part that we didn't get to, uh, and let me just kind of tease it just a little bit, is ultimately they're studying the book of Abraham and they're not being able to understand the book of Abraham and they believe that it has ancient knowledge and understanding that will help unlock the Book of Mormon as well. And they're, and they're trying to understand Egyptian. They can't. So what other language could they study that might help unlock Egyptian that might help them understand the book of Abraham? Hebrew. So now, and we will start with this next week. Now comes Joseph going, 
I'm trying to learn Egyptian, don't have the ability to learn Egyptian, but I could learn Hebrew. And now we need to start understanding Hebrew so that we can understand the Egyptian, so we can get to the ancient documents that are there, so we can prove the Book of Mormon. So we're going to start off next week talking about the book of Hebrew and Joshua Satius, uh, their instructor, and, and how that fits into a number of things, including the uh, temple endowment. So uh, bear you my testimony that... Uh, I know, kind of dry, not a lot of application, but this is a lot of setup towards saying your understanding and knowledge of these wonderful brethren, I hope grows through an idea, as you see it all in context, you understand why it is that they were so blessed and why it is that the Lord can work with flawed people, with li people with limited understanding, and make them Relief Society presidents. <laughs> Even though you don't think you can do it, then you can, because he's been doing it forever. Uh, anyway, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Just wanted to announce that tomorrow in Mama Toot, yes. we're studying Elizabeth M. 